0: Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 8, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is a little bit longer passage and densely argued. But we need to take it in as a whole. And so let's clear our minds and focus and try to comprehend what it is that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, is communicating here in this passage. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To, excuse me, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that In view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on... Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is, And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are reminded after reading that text that you seek to meet us in the contingencies and the details of life. That your word is for real life. It's not for ideal situations, it's for real situations. And we want to thank you for that. Father, that's yet another evidence and sign of your grace and your mercy to us. We do not deserve your kindness and your attention. We don't deserve your guidance. And yet, out of your compassion for us as your children, you have provided instruction to us to help us know how to live while we remain on assignment in this world that is passing away. Father, this morning I pray that your gospel truth would be exalted, that you would implant in our hearts the reality that this life is just a vapor. It's here for a little time and then vanishes away and eternity stretches out far beyond the horizon. Father, help us to fulfill our calling in light of that truth. Help us to see the, pre- the present things as temporary and the future things as eternal. Help us to treasure our treasures not on the earth but in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. Help us to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth, so that we might experience the fullness and the abundance of the life that you give us in the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. On August 14th, 1945, the Japanese military agreed to surrender unconditionally to the Allied forces. A few weeks later, on September 2nd, aboard the USS Missouri, formal surrender documents were signed officially, marking the end of the bloodiest conflict humanity has ever seen, the Second World War. Most of us have watched movies or TV shows about World War II in which the end of hostilities kind of cuts quickly to A victorious return to the United States, soldiers and sailors kind of hanging out the portholes of of, uh, giant battleships and waving and cheering, parades and parties in the streets, tears of joy, soldiers being reunited with their sweethearts. And, And what's sort of implied by that, at least to my mind, and I'm sure it's unintentional, is that there's a rapid shift from the throes of war to the joys of peace, but in reality, the transition was a lot slower than that. In fact, I was, supr- uh, I was surprised to learn that Operation Magic Carpet, the effort to bring all the boys home, wasn't really completed until exactly a year later on September first, 1946. That seems like a long time. But keep in mind, according to the National World War II Museum, there were literally 8 million servicemen and women overseas uh, scattered across 55 theaters of war, spanning four continents when the war finally ended. Hundreds of thousands of them were still in Europe, even though victory in Europe had been achieved in May of 1945. So bringing them all stateside would be the largest movement of personnel in the history of the world. As you can imagine, while they waited, tensions between GIs and their chain of command were at an all-time high. A contingent of about 500 American soldiers were stuck in London at the time, and uh, the former president's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, was visiting London. She had to give a speech for the newly formed United Nations, and so she met with a delegation of these 500 disgruntled soldiers. Uh, They complained to the widow of the former president that it was just taking too long to get home, that their accommodations were uncomfortable, that it just wasn't fair, and Uh, A few of them were actually arrested because of their violent behavior when Mrs. Roosevelt was there. But the experience prompted uh, Mrs. Roosevelt to write a letter to their commanding officer explaining to him, boys just need to have something to do. I'm sure that letter was well received by the man in charge of these boys. As unpopular as it might have been to say so, and in addition to the logistical challenges associated with bringing them home, the reality is there was still important work to do. In fact, the presence of the American military in Europe during the aftermath of, the world, of World War II would help to establish a post-war political environment in Western Europe characterized by unprecedented peace and prosperity. But to individual soldiers, I'm sure it was a challenge every day. Knowing that victory was secure, to get up out of their cot and walk to their post And stay there and keep their patrols and eat another meal at the chow hall. I wonder, Christian, if this morning you feel as though you're in a slightly similar situation. Christ has already won the victory over the powers of the grave. Our salvation is secure. King Jesus holds the deed to the heavens and the earth. The covenant's demands have been met. And yet, in the here and now, We're still dealing with the writhings of a defeated foe. We're still fighting against the sin and the corruption of our own flesh. We're still living in a world that very much lies under the power of the evil one. We've still been given a task. And King Jesus, our general, is telling us, stay at your post. Lead the life the Lord is leading you to live. Be content in your calling. Even if you're single and you wish you were married, even if you're married and your marriage is a disappointment to you, even if your circumstances are less than ideal, it does not make you less valuable to God. Stay put, endure, because you're going home. Unlike the assignments of the U.S. military, the calling Christ has placed on your life is never, ever a mistake. It may not be easy. In fact, it probably will not be easy. But stay put anyway. this is essentially the core message that Paul seeks to communicate here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The occasion, of course, is this issue of, of, you know, I'm single and I'm wondering should I get married? Or I'm married, my marriage is a disappointment, should I stay married? But remember how Paul argues in the letter of 1 Corinthians. He takes circumstances and situations in the church at Corinth, and he uses those circumstances as sort of a jumping-off point to get into gospel truth. This is the way that he argues throughout the entire letter, and that's the way he's going to argue here in 1 Corinthians 7. Specific practical problems serve as a platform for emphasizing gospel truth. And here's the gospel principle he wants to emphasize that sort of, broadens out from this practical issue be content with your calling now obviously there are a lot of practical entailments to that and all of us are given unique circumstances in which to serve the Lord so here's how we're going to work through first Corinthians 7 today we're going to understand and, and, and explain the general principle that Paul is seeking to get across and then we're going to take some time to apply that specifically to people who are unmarried And then next week, we're going to spend our time dealing with the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, since that's something Paul addresses here, but it really requires a separate treatment that kind of broadens out to the teaching of the entire Bible. So we'll we'll save marriage, divorce, and remarriage for next week. Today, we're going to be talking about this general principle and then applying it to those who are single. So with that being said, let's turn our attention now to the principle Explained The principle explained. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses a number of different scenarios. Those who are unmarried, those who have never been married, those who are married and for one reason or another, they're anxious to escape their marriage. Those who find themselves in a mixed marriage where one spouse is a believer and the other spouse is not a believer. And the counsel he's going to give is extremely pastoral and sensitive to the unique contours of each situation. What should you do? I'm single and I want to get married. I'm married and I don't want to be married anymore. I'm married to an unbeliever. What should I do? And Paul essentially is saying it depends on the situation. It depends a lot on the contours of your circumstances. But that isn't to say there isn't one unifying theme, a general principle that we ought to apply. In fact, he comes out and says it in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He essentially repeats it in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And again in verse 24. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now I do need to clarify. That doesn't mean... That in your current circumstance, it's wrong to wish you had a different circumstance. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that your circumstances should never change. In fact, he says the exact opposite in, in, in certain situations. And, and his, his own life is a case in point, by the way. When Paul became a Christian, he was an artisan who worked with wood and leather constructing tents. And he was also a student of the law. And he was a leader in the Jewish faith When he came to Christ, he didn't stay all those things for the rest of his life. No, he shifted gears and he became a missionary and a church planner and a pastor and a prisoner as occasion required. The point, though, is that wherever King Jesus has placed you in life, you should remain there until he calls you to do something else. And he gives a handful of examples. We've already talked about one, your relational status, married, single, widow, Which one is the best? Well, it depends. Stay where God has put you. In verse 18, he brings up the issue of religious or cultural status. Is it better to be a Jew or a Gentile? Neither, Paul says. Just stay in the assignment that you received from Christ. In verse 21, a third example is given. and, and, And amazingly, Paul actually addresses the issue of slavery. Certainly, freedom is better than slavery. And Paul says, yeah, that's fine. If you can obtain freedom, go ahead and take, uh, take advantage, avail yourself of the opportunity. But if God's called you to stay in that role, you, you might be the most useful to your king as a slave. So stay in the assignment that the master has given you. Be content in your calling. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that that's not always going to be easy to do. I wonder today if the assignment you've been given is a disappointment to you. A source of grief or discouragement or even a threat to your faith. There are a number of possible reasons for this. Of course, there are certain circumstances that are painful in and of themselves. Slavery is the obvious example from our text. Slavery to first century people was not an academic question. It wasn't a historical curiosity. It was a life reality for many of us believers in the early church. A lot of them were slaves, and in many cases, there was nothing anybody could do about it. That was just their lot in life. That was their assignment. Some circumstances are disappointing because they make us question our usefulness, like we're wasting our lives. Commentators have actually speculated that these Uh, questions, uh, the the impetus behind the questions of marriage and divorce actually stem from the reality that in the Corinthian church, there were gifted women who were doing ministry, but they found themselves sort of shackled to a, a marriage that forced them to do all of the caring for children and the cooking and the cleaning and all the stuff a housewife had to do in pre-modern times, and they were sort of stuck, and they felt like they couldn't be as useful to the Lord in that situation. So they were thinking, man, it would be nice if I weren't actually married at all. Sometimes these circumstances make us feel less useful. Other times these circumstances disappoint because of the apparent happiness of everybody else. Why is it that my sister and her husband have no problems with intimacy, but my spouse and I struggle? Why aren't I married yet when all of my peers seem to be pairing off? Why am I dealing with the grief of losing a spouse when all of my friends are taking their marriage into the golden years? Why me? Why is not that everybody else seems to have a different circumstance than me? That's sometimes the source of disappointment with our calling that God has given us finally, there are circumstances that make us feel as though we just don't measure up spiritually. If you were a Gentile coming to Christ in the first century, there were probably times when you felt less than in comparison with your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder this morning if in your relational status, in your religious background, in your cultural situation your economic station you've been given an assignment that makes as makes you feel as though you are less than in the eyes of god you're dealing with difficulty and there's no escape you're stuck in a rut and you feel like a failure you seem to be drawing the short stick when everybody else is experiencing happiness and you're struggling spiritually and you're wondering god why me you want to know why many Christians mope around, avoid their Bible, avoid their church, invest in the things of this life instead of pursuing Jesus? It's because they look at their lot in life and they think, well, I guess I got the basic base level package of the grace of God instead of the supreme premium package that everybody else seems to have got." I'm not feeling very loved and valued and cared for by a father who says he loves his children. If he loves me in Christ, then why do I have to deal with this stuff that nobody else seems to have to deal with? This is the kind of situation Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 7. And he gives us a handful of things that we need to remember when we feel pressure to escape our assignment or abandon the goodness of God because of the pressures of our circumstances. You have to keep some things in mind. You have to remember some things. So first of all, you need to remember that your union with Christ is the most important thing about you. Your union with Christ is the most important thing about you, no matter your calling. He says in verse 22, He who who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, even if you're a slave, even if you have your freedoms taken away from you, this isn't the most important thing about you. This is what he was telling the Galatian believers in the passage that, uh, that we read earlier in the service in Galatians chapter 3. He's saying, look, yeah, before you were under the law, before you were slaves, but now you're a son. Now you're a royal priest. Now there's no slave or free. There's not even male or female. You're all the same status before God. That's the most important thing about you. You're called out. You're chosen to represent the God of the universe in the world. And, folks, nobody can take that away. No circumstance can take away from that. Uh, Nobody can destroy that privilege. That means from the lowest galley slave to the highest nobleman, from the young girl in the group home to a rich man looking out over his vast acreage, from the terminal cancer ward to the Olympic village, no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstance, the most important thing about you is where you stand in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian in your heart? Not do you like some of the things that he said. Not were you raised in a church and your your parents or your grandparents brought you to to church when you were a little kid. No, what I'm asking is, do you personally belong to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Have you given your life to him? Have you trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived in obedience to the Father, kept a law that I could never keep. Jesus died a death I deserved to die. Jesus laid down his life as a perfect sacrificial substitute for me. He died the death that I deserved to die so that I might live. And he rose victoriously from the grave. And he's my savior and he's my king. He's my God. And by faith, he's joined me to himself. What about you? Do you have the Lord Jesus Christ? Where you stand in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's way more important than whether you're single or married. That's way more important than whether you're slave or free or Jew or Gentile. Where are you when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, your union with Christ is the most important thing about you. Secondly, remember that your relational status, your economic status, your circumstances in life are tied to a world that is passing away. They're tied to a world that is passing away. Do you realize that? Consider what Paul says, beginning in verse 29. He says, The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. You know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of the last week of school. How many of you just got done with school? What do you do in the last week of school? You live as though you aren't in school, right? Because you just see that last day is just right there. And so your teacher comes in and says, you know, we're going to have a, a test. And you're like, I've already, I already know what I, my grade in this class. I don't have to worry about that. Well, we have to turn in a paper. Hey, th- We're just a few days away from being out of school. And I know there are some of you who do all the work, and you do your duty, and that's great. But really, in your mind, you're living, you're a student, but you're living as though you're not a student, right? I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Or is it just me when I was in school? What is Paul saying? It means, what he means to say is that the unlimited vista of eternity that stretches out beyond the horizon relativizes the pains and pleasures of the present life have you felt that like man my marriage has me trapped in disappointment and disillusionment but blink and it'll be over i'm serious it's done the present form of this world is passing away and then eternity my grief is unbearable i lost my spouse yes no question but folks listen blink and it will be over The present form of this world is passing away, and then eternity. You say, everything's coming together. My marriage is in great shape. My job is where I want it to be. My bank account's in a good spot. I'm rejoicing. But even this, especially this, is temporary. Blink, and it will be over. The form of this world is passing away and then eternity. I'm so busy. My job is taking up so much of my time and focus. But, but friend, be careful because all of that stuff that you're so focused on and you're so consumed by, it's temporary and, and, and blink and it's going to be over. The present form of this world is passing away. For the man or woman whose affections are set on the here and now, that is a terrifying reality. But for the man or woman whose affections, whose mind, whose heart is set on the things above, whose treasure is laid up in heaven instead of laid up here on earth where moth and rust and thieves are going to take it away, that's a joyous reality. Like for the man or woman who remembers that life is a vapor and that forever in the new creation is a long time and that my sufferings, my sufferings will have a specific purpose that I don't understand now, but I'm going to understand then to remember that this world is passing away and I'm just passing through and I'm going to live with Christ forever and eternity. That is mind-blowing and life-changing. You want to know why you're not content with your calling? You say, because it's really difficult. No, that's not why. A A lot of people deal with difficulty. Here's the reason why. Maybe... It's because all your hope is in a world that isn't going to last. You refuse to suffer in a disappointing marital situation. And why? Because that's the only marriage that you're going to have. And one day you're going to die, and then your life is going to be over. And in your mind, the way that you're living, this is the one life that you get. And if I don't get the joy that I want out of my marriage, then I'm out of here. Because we forget that eternity stretches out into the future. And if I were to ask you, Christian, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he's coming again? Do you believe you'll live with him one day in the new creation? Do you believe that you'll experience unimaginable joy for all of eternity? Most of you, church members, Indian Creek people, you would say, yes, I believe that. But then King Jesus calls you to suffer a little bit, to go through a season where you don't know what's next, to wait on him, to go through a circumstance where you don't feel as useful, where you don't feel as enjoy, where it doesn't feel as enjoyable, and you forget all that stuff about eternity, and you start thinking about your here and now, and you say, no thanks, that's not for me. Why? Isn't it because you're living as though all of the pleasure and all of the meaning and all of the happiness you experience is going to have to happen before you die? But if you really believe that you're going to live with Christ forever, then, then you can lean in to a difficult calling. You can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember the reality of the resurrection. Remember the brevity of the present life. Remember... God's incredible goal to gather to himself a people from every tribe and language in the new creation where every tear will be wiped away and every pain will be taken away and we will serve him and be served by him for all of eternity. Remember that every day so that you can be content in your calling. Number three, remember the unique opportunities to serve the Lord that are afforded you because of the calling that God's given you. Remember the unique opportunities that your assignment will afford. Remember that King Jesus has wisely put you in a place where you have a chance to do what you could not otherwise do. This is one of the things he points out in verses 12 through 16. Here in these verses, Paul's talking about someone who's married to a person that's not a believer. So you're a believer, you're married to an unbeliever. And that's hard nowadays, but in the first century, that was extremely difficult. Uh, According to an ancient writer named Plutarch, wives especially were expected to just sort of go along with her husband's gods. Uh, When these guys talk about the ideal wife, they say, We want someone who is uh, religious, but not superstitious. And what that means is we want her to just go along with our religion and not ask too many questions because that would cause pain. Uh, Combine that with the fact that being reported to the authorities as a Christian could end up in your death. And you have to understand, being married to an unbeliever as a Christian was even more difficult and harrowing then than it is today. And I'm not taking away from the fact that it's difficult today. What was he... uh, Uh, And Paul has to remind them, uh, by the way, what was even more concerning to to some of the Corinthian believers was uh, just this reality that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, like cleanse out the leaven. They were thinking, okay, I've got to be pure in order to be accepted before God, and I wonder if this unbelieving spouse is actually making me impure and unclean. And Paul says, no, think in terms of the new covenant. Yes, it's true that unclean things in the old covenant, when they touched something pure, they made it impure. But then Jesus came along, and Jesus was so pure and so holy that his holiness became contagious, and when he touched a leper, an unclean person, that unclean person became clean when he touched someone who was dead or demon-possessed. His holiness infected them instead of the other way around, and that's kind of like what you're experiencing as a person who belongs to the new covenant. So if you're married to an unbeliever, it's not them making you dirty. You actually make them, in a sense, holy. So Paul essentially saying, that you have this infectious impact on your spouse and your children. The unbelieving spouse, he says in verse 14, is made holy because of her husband or wife, and the same goes for the children. You never know whether your actions might be the very thing that saves your spouse's soul. Here's the point. You're in a difficult situation. But don't forget that that assignment may position you to do something you could not otherwise do in the service of God. That opportunity to serve is worth something. Consider someone like Esther or Mordecai from the Old Testament. You remember them? I can't think of anyone more sexually victimized than these two individuals. Esther was taken for the king's harem. She was made uh, one of his wives, uh, one of hundreds. Uh, Many speculate that since Mordecai was allowed to approach the harem, he may have himself been made a eunuch. And yet when the time came for them to rescue people from a genocidal plot, Mordecai challenged Esther, maybe it is that you've been put into this situation for such a time as this. And Esther replies, hey, I'm going to go do what I'm called to do. And if I perish, I perish. Paul's counsel is not that you have to be a masochist or a glutton for punishment. It's good to seek relief from a painful situation. But friend, listen to me. If that's where God has you for the moment, then it may be because he's giving you an assignment that you could not otherwise complete if you were in a different situation. Don't forget that. Look for the open doors that God is giving you in your disappointment. Look for the open doors that God is giving you in your grief, in your loneliness. Remember that your situation may open a door for ministry that would otherwise be closed. That doesn't mean it makes it less painful. That doesn't mean it makes it less difficult, but it does make it uh, what God assigned you to do. And you never know what God could use in your life by using that opportunity. Number four, in your situation, never forget that Jesus is king and he has the authority to direct you wherever he wants. Never forget that Jesus is king and he has the authority to direct you wherever he wants. You are a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ, according to verse 22. You say, I don't want to be a slave of anybody. I don't want to be a servant of anybody. I want to be free. But consider the, the company that you're keeping when you become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's favorite way to refer to himself was? Paul, the apostle, servant, that means slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know where he got that terminology? Moses, Joshua, the servants of God. Even Jesus himself is called my servant by the prophet Isaiah. Don't shrink back from the absolute submission required of a servant. Jesus is your king, your general, and he has every right to decide what your situation is going to be. Learn to recognize that to stay at your post To be content in your calling is far better than to reject the lordship of Christ and take charge of yourself. So Christian, this morning, are your circumstances, is your calling leaving you feeling disappointed? looking around at everybody else, wondering why they don't have to deal with what you're facing, wondering whether you'll ever be useful to God, wondering whether you are a second-class citizen in his estimation. The general principle of this passage is that you, even you, in that situation, in that disappointment, must be content in your calling. Have faith in the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ where he directs, he comforts, and equips. He will not assign you to the wrong place. He did not make a mistake in permitting you to go through what you're going through. He has a plan, and one day you're going to see what that plan is. That's the general principle. Let's go ahead and apply that general principle to those who are not married. In both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures, Marriage was the expected duty of just about every adult human because everyone understood that bearing and raising children and then passing down your property and your tradecraft to the next generation was the most basic building block of community. We've lost that mentality in our society. That's another topic for another day. But that's what everybody understood back then. And yet Paul clearly says in this chapter that remaining unmarried, he's going against the culture here, remaining unmarried can actually be superior to marriage. In fact, he himself is unmarried. By the way, it's likely that Paul was married at one time, and his wife either left him or passed away, and he never married again. Paul is unmarried at this time, and he says, basically, for your own benefit, it's better for you to be like me. It's better for you to remain single. And he gives one reason why. Being single, here's the reason why you should remain single. Being single frees you up from the obligations of marriage so that you can focus on God's mission. Being single frees you up from the obligations of marriage so that you can focus on God's mission. He says the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, in Paul's day, these marital obligations were all consuming for both men and women, especially if you weren't part of the extremely small wealthy class. It it took every fiber of your strength just to survive. And if you were married, if you had children, you had to toil and labor all day, whether you were the wife or the husband, just to live and to keep your children alive. This was Paul's world. And of course, nowadays things are a little different. We enjoy unprecedented wealth. We have the freedom to move around and do different types of work. Uh, It's much safer to have children, especially for women, than it used to be in the first century. And so Our situation is a little bit different, but the fact remains that marriage carries obligations that you'd be foolish to ignore. Uh, A lot of married people try, and it does not work, okay? There are obligations that go along with being married. So what Paul is saying is that singleness may be God's calling on your life, specifically if it frees you up to focus on the things of the Lord. Of course, some people want to be single for bad or selfish reasons. I'm not talking about that. But Paul says remaining single is fine. Actually, it can be superior in some cases. So here's the point. You do not have to be married in order to have a fulfilling and wonderful and meaningful and useful life. You don't need to be married in order to bear the image of God to the degree that God desires. You don't have to be married to bring glory to God. Many great servants of God have been single for their whole life or most of their adult life. Paul, of course, is a case in point. Jesus was never married and he was the son of God. If you're wondering whether this might be God's calling for you, I would encourage you to read about people like Amy Carmichael or Lottie Moon or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Corrie ten Boom or John Stott. All of these faithful Christians remained unmarried and had a wonderful impact throughout the course of a long life and their singleness was a huge factor in allowing them to fulfill their ministry. Singleness is superior to marriage if it enables sustained, undivided focus on the mission of God. Now, there is another side to this. And that is, if you want to get married, fine. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Each state of being has different opportunities but neither one is better in terms of morality. You say, well, if I'm honest, Jake, I'm single, and I do want to get married, and the reason why is because, just being honest, I have very strong sexual desires. I feel like maybe that's wrong. And what Paul is saying here in this passage is there's nothing wrong with that. That's not wrong at all. There's not something wrong with you. There's not something dirty or messed up about you if you experience strong sexual desires. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with who you are. God gave you those desires. And one of the reasons why marriage is a gift is because it opens the door to the fulfillment of that sort of thing. Verse 36 If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. Because if you're gonna remain single, there's no option for you to fulfill yourself and your sexual desires. But if that's difficult for you, or if it's just not what you wanna do, then this is one of the reasons why God gave us marriage. That desire isn't evil, it's good. And the same goes for all the other benefits of marriage. You say, I want children. I want companionship. I want my relationship with my spouse to display the glories of the love of Christ for his church. Fine, there's nothing wrong with that. Go for it. Get married if that's what you want to do. But you do need to marry someone who is a follower of Christ. Uh, It's almost like this should go without saying, but Paul actually does come out and say in verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes Only in the Lord. If you want to get married, you need to marry somebody who loves Jesus. Now, with that being said, let me just pause for a second to address two special cases that I think apply to many of the people, perhaps in this room, and many of the people that we love and care about. The first is those who want to be married but don't seem to have the opportunity to get married. I want to be married, but I don't have any prospects. I don't see anything on the horizon happening in my life, and I'm discouraged by that. To you I say, remember our principles. Remember your union with Christ. Pray with Paul that you might comprehend the fullness of the love of God toward those who believe. The greater your conviction, the greater your understanding of his love, the greater your joy will be in spite of the fact that you're in a situation you'd rather not be in. Consider the expanse of eternity in comparison with your temporary trial. Yes, you're weighted and you're burdened with a situation that feels unbearable, but the day will come, it's going to come, when every tear is going to be wiped away and every pain is going to be taken away and every grief is going to be taken away. Don't forget that your life is a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. While you wait on the Lord, consider and lean on the opportunities that you have now that you will not have when you get married, if you get married. And finally, remember the authority of Christ, your king. See, what that means, single Christian, is that if you're single and you wish you weren't, then what God is calling you to do is you must learn to grieve the situation that God has allowed into your life instead of growing angry and bitter As though God has done something unjust to you. If you knew what he knows, you wouldn't be angry with him. You wouldn't be bitter towards him. Don't be angry. Bring your pain, bring your grief to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, I know you're wise. I know you've got an assignment for me. I know that you know more than I do, but I'm in pain. I'm going through some difficulty. How long, O Lord? Grieve before a good and loving God, that he's allowed this in your life for a good reason, even though you may not understand what it is. By the way, the same goes for another special case. Any of you today who love the Lord, but you're struggling with the temptation for same-sex attraction, or maybe you feel like I don't fit in with the gender that I, uh, you know, that my, I don't feel like I fit in with my body. The reason I'm bringing this up is because you're probably unmarried, And this month, corporations and celebrities and politicians are going to be tripping over themselves to tell you that you should just give in to those desires. And what I want to say to you is the same thing that I would tell to anyone who's single and wants to be married trust God. Trust God with your situation. I imagine the temptation to give into that way of thinking is going to be powerful. You need to understand that when you see something on the television or the computer that says, "Hey, just go for it. That's who you are." It's not just something that you want. You should do. That's like the essential part of your identity. When they're telling you that, they don't love you. They don't care about you. They care about themselves. And what they've invested their life in is calling lies truth. And calling things that are beautiful, or calling things that are ugly beautiful, they are not a trustworthy source of truth. Go to the Word of God. Remember that He is wise. Remember that He is good. Remember that your identity with Christ is the most important part of you. Remember that your trials are temporary and they're going to give way to an eternal weight of glory. Remember that your situation may create an opportunity that other people wouldn't have. And remember, remember this. The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge. You're not in charge of yourself, friend. And for me to tell you otherwise would not be loving or caring. God didn't make you so that you could just make whoever, make yourself into whoever you want yourself to be. God made you because he wants to be in charge of you. And there's nothing better than to submit to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's far more merciful, far more kind, far more gracious than you will ever be to yourself and far more loving than a world that doesn't love you. Please give yourself to him. Don't give in to the lies. Don't believe for one second that embracing a life of rebellion is going to be better than remaining single. Your relationship with Christ is far more important. You have a king. You have a general. Friends, our king has already won the victory. He's already defeated the enemy. He's already conquered sin and hell and death and the devil. And for this short time, For this brief, momentary life, he's calling each of us to stay at our post, even though it's hard to do, even though it might not look as good as somebody else's, even though it tests our faith. You say, Jake, I'm single, I don't want to be, or I'm married, and my marriage, excuse me, is a disappointment. I'm dealing with desires I don't even want to acknowledge, and I don't know what to do. Listen, don't give up. Don't compromise your commitment to Christ. Be content in your calling. Lean into the life the Lord assigned. If you want to change and God opens the door, great. But in the meantime, remember who you are. Remember your future. Consider the opportunities you have to serve. And at the end of the day, you do, friends. listen to me, you do what Christ directs you to do because he's in charge and he's our wonderful king. Say yes to King Jesus, for that's far better than being our own commanding officer. Be content in your calling. Would you pray with me now? Father, I just want to thank you for this these reminders, things that are basic to the Christian faith, but are easy to forget. The difficulties, the challenges, the trials that you've called us to walk through distract us from the truth that you have welcomed us into your kingdom and not only that, but into your family as the sons and daughters of the Most High King in Christ. They distract us from eternity, and they make the things present seem bigger than they really are. They prevent us from taking advantage of the opportunities you give each one of us to serve. And they cause us to forget that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our King. And so, Father, what we're asking that you would do this morning is, by your Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of your truth remind us of who you are, remind us of who we are in Christ, and cause us to be faithful and lean in to the calling that you've called each one of us to, regardless of what that is. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.